Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Welcome to another edition of That to Which We Are Tethered, a discussion of belief and disbelief in light of ever-changing times and trends. On this episode, we are joined by Pastor Daniel Bradshaw, the Professor of Systematic Theology, Philosophy, and Christian Ethics for the Kentucky District School of Ministry. Dan helps us parse through the confusion over authority and scripture, the claims of fundamentalist and the deviations of progressives. The first thing I want to ask you about is, of course, you're a pastor. Right. And so, obviously, weekly you're mining you know, old scripture and you know, mm-hmm. presenting it to, to modern people. It seems like you have different views um, on scripture as a whole, but also the Old Testament gets kind of a special treatment. So, for example, uh, I think uh, a lot of modern Christians ignore most, or at least a lot of the Old Testament. Uh, and then you have, of course, the progressive movement that ignores well, probably both parts of the Bible, quite a bit of it, and, sure. and maybe some just ignore it altogether. Sure. Do you see the, the complexity of that? Do you understand why some people want to ignore some parts of it? And, and what do you say to that? Well, first of all, I would say if you if you want to talk about the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we know that the Old Testament is Hebrew Scripture. It's the Hebrew Bible. Right. You know, one of the things that a lot of atheists complain about, especially the three monotheistic religions, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, is that we have books that we take as authoritative. Mm-hmm. And for Christians, we see the Bible as authoritative, but there's always been some question about the authority of the Old Testament, since it's Jewish scripture, uh, and we as Christians interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament in a way that I'm sure Jewish people, for the most part, do not. Mm-hmm. But go right ahead. Well, how do you square that circle, as they say, like... You know, Jesus obviously was a Jewish Messiah, at least in our belief. Yes. Did he come out and kind of like say, okay, now we're going to do this? Uh, we're we're going to ignore some part of the Old Testament, or we're going to look at it differently? Well, he, to some degree, Jesus did do that. You remember in uh, the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about what we call the antithetical statements of Jesus, when he's talking about the law, and he, now you know that Jesus said at one time that uh, the not one word of the law was he here to abolish. He was, he said, I uphold the law, and Jesus, we believe, is the fulfillment of the Jewish law. But he still, some of the things within um, Israelite history and within Judaism, he would say, for example, you have heard it said from those of old to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, mm-hmm love your enemy, and treat even people that despise you and mistreat you, treat them well as well. So what Jesus is doing there is reinterpreting the law in a different kind of way. 
uh, and he does that on many occasions. So the way I see it, I think, you know, if you, if you think of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, as primarily God's will for humanity to live according to these principles, um, that was good and right, but as I think most people are aware, um, the Jewish people, and even before they were called Jews, the Israelite people, um, added to those laws, and even even in the Pentateuch and in Leviticus, Levitical law became far beyond the Decalogue. Mm-hmm. And there were, and a lot of the, you know, we think about the laws that we have in our country, and they're not all necessarily moral laws. Some of them are, but they're not necessarily moral or ethical laws. And it was kind of like that in Judaism. If you think about an ancient people, you know, it's just like, don't eat pork, you know, we don't follow that necessarily today. Um, at least Christians are not bound by that kind of law, dietary laws. And, and I know I'm a little off the subject now, but but uh, Jesus also, some of the laws like that, he, he said, you know, as far as dietary laws were concerned, he said, it's really not what goes into your body that makes you unclean, but what comes out of you that makes you unclean. And so he kind of to some degree, changed that Jewish. And he said, you know, basically that, that famous story with Paul and uh, when he became a Christian and he, and he saw all the unclean animals that no good Jew would even be around. But then, you know, God tells him that whatever I say is clean is clean, right? So there were, there were revisions, even in first century Judaism, uh, maybe not Judaism, but first century Christianity, some of the laws from the book of the law, right? The Pentateuch, um, the first five books of the Old Testament. There were some variations to that. But going back to my previous point, the the law for Jews became in the time, uh, the, by the first century, there were just countless laws. I mean, you, you know, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy was a law, but then the Pharisees and many other groups within within Judaism, added many things to that. They, you literally could only take so many steps, and there were just all kinds of... So that's kind of the problem with with written laws. It, it can easily kind of snowball and just become more and more and more. And I think we even see that in our culture right now. You know, the Congress, their job is to make laws. And so I guess if you're doing your job, you're making laws. So we, and and I, I always think about it like this. Every time a new law is passed, individuals lose a certain amount of rights, right? There's mm-hmm. always that... Um, Unintended consequences? Yes, that, that's right. And you, you make a law and it's somehow prohibiting individual right or freedom, right. you know? I think a stumbling block for a lot of uh, very sincere Christians, and I'll assert some of my own thinking here, that when you hear you say something like that, like, well, what do you mean that laws were added that maybe God or Christ did not necessarily intend, is what I'm hearing you say. And they've been taught, or we've all been taught uh, somewhat, is that, in essence, God hand-wrote the Scriptures this came from the mouth of God. Everything that's in the Bible uh, came from him. And so God being God would not contradict himself or would not change his mind. So explain why that isn't maybe necessarily a case or maybe there was a misunderstanding somewhere along the way. The inerrancy of scripture. 
Right. We believe in the plenary in inspiration of Scripture. Now, different Protestant churches have different views on this. In my particular Wesleyan tradition, uh, we don't necessarily believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. We believe that the Bible is inerrant in everything in regard to how we are saved, how we can be saved. But there are, and I don't, I don't say this too often, but there are some mistakes in Scripture. You know, the Scripture was copied. We have no autographs. We have no original uh, copies of Scripture. So um, the New Testament, I think the oldest, the oldest manuscripts of any New Testament book is about A.D. 1000. So it's not a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And there, there are some older codices and and different things. And now we have much, much older uh, copies of the Old Testament because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which a lot of people think may be the most significant um, artifact discovery ever of all time because of their significance. But those, some of the Dead Sea Scrolls might date back to 253 years before, 300 years before Christ. Mm-hmm. So they're very old. I think we... And when I say we, I, I think about rank-and-file Christians sitting in the pews, even devout Christians on Sunday morning. I don't think uh, a lot of people have the right idea about how Scripture came to be. We do believe that it was inspired by God, but we do believe it was written by human beings as well. It's not like when Paul writes his letters to uh, the church at Philippi, God is not literally, you know, putting him into some kind of trance. And mm-hmm. No, he's writing a letter. Yeah. It is inspired by God, but it's the words of Paul as well. Right. And we believe that about the Gospels and really everything in Scripture. Um, I think some people have, an, and, that, and that's been a, a matter of discussion and debate to some degree when we talk about uh, the inspiration of Scripture, exactly how did God uh, inspire the biblical writers. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people have a view that literally God is making, you know, guiding, the pen move. Yeah, yeah guiding his hand. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. When that's not really what the church, to my knowledge, has ever taught or believed. But that's, you know, there's, there's always a pretty big gap between what rank and file, we might say, Christians believe and what the theologians of even the same denomination or same um, tradition mm-hmm. might have a little bit different view. And I think that's true in, in any in, in any discipline, right? There's going to be a, a gap between... Like the layman and the... Theology and expert. practice, right? right. So I mentioned like the progressive view of Scripture is they... In fact, I just watched a video just last week where uh, they were going through Scripture and they were voting on whether to yeah. ignore it. Yes. Uh, and they were saying that some of it was hateful or some of it was homophobic or whatever. And so they were striking it from the Bible. And so you see that and you're like, huh, that doesn't seem uh, very prudent. And so how do you differentiate between people just basically creating a church of what they want yeah. and not being submissive to God yeah. and someone who's being truthful about the history of Scripture and trying to get at the heart of what God really wants? Let me preface the answer to that by saying that there have been some movements, and I, I know you're aware of Quest for the Historic Jesus, mm-hmm. uh, which I think started back in the early 1900s, early 20th century, but kind of 
came to resurgence again in the in the 60s or 70s and it was called the new quest for the historic jesus and uh, i had a seminary professor named dr joseph colson who was a, really a leading hebrew scholar he taught he advanced hebrew biblical hebrew a uh, very bright bright man and he was invited to the new quest for the historic jesus and so he went and he came back I don't know how far removed it was from when I heard heard the story from him. But he said, here's what they do at the New Quest for the Historic Jesus. They read something that happens in the New Testament from the Gospels or the words of Jesus. And they go around this uh, huge uh, oval table of of, uh, PhD theologians, Bible scholars, and others. And they just take a vote. Do you believe that this is what Jesus actually said? Or is is this just what the first century church decided they would write? And so it really is um, questioning the validity of Scripture, first and foremost. And but, But to your question more specifically, we do live in a culture now where people, and I, I, I like to talk about it as we see the Bible as kind of a smorgasbord of ideas or principles and the ones that if we're walking through the buffet line, we just take the stuff we want and we ignore the stuff we don't want. And some people treat scripture in that way and they say, well, I like this. Um, I'm going to keep that. Uh, anything that's difficult or I don't like, I'm just going to reject it. And by the way, that's the that's the hermeneutic, uh, evidently, of Oprah Winfrey, right, because right. she pretty much famously <laughs> said that, you know, I, I really like a lot of things in the Bible, but I don't like it when it says that God is a jealous God. I don't think God should be jealous. So so Oprah decides she would tell God how, how, what he should think and how he should act. Right. Um, but she's not alone in that thing. Yeah, yeah, right. She's not alone in that thing, certainly. That's just one example right. of, of countless examples. But I think rank and file people now pretty much, and if, if you know anything about, I don't know if I should talk about particular dom- denominations, but yeah. the Methodist Church, I think it's pretty well established that they decided, well, we're going to believe this and we're not going to believe that, and they've taken a position on it. Well, and, they, and not just the Methodists, the Episcopals and right. many others. Well, they've split over it, it sounds like. I mean, Absolutely. So you have some that are yeah. like, hey, we can't do that, and others that are like, no, we can And yeah. they're arguing over church properties now, I think. And uh, It's a property discussion as much as anything right now. Yeah. You're right about that. But to me, if you want my opinion, mm-hmm. and I think you probably do, or I wouldn't be yeah. sitting in this chair right <laughs> But what, what I preach and what I teach is, we have to take the Bible, uh, especially the New Testament, in its totality. And we can't just... And can I give you one kind of extreme example? Yeah. There's commercials on that, that I hear every now, now and then on t- television. And it says, you know, Jesus gets us. Jesus is all about us. Jesus understands us. Jesus loves all of us. And so, yeah, Jesus loves all of us. He's, he, he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. But we have this, we paint this picture, and it's really a caricature of the man Jesus, right? And so the things that that kind of go along with our very progressive culture, yeah, we're going to grab those things and embrace them about Jesus. You know, Jesus gets us. Well, Jesus does get us, mm. whatever that means. Yeah. But then there's, there's a lot of things that Jesus says that you're not going to hear on those commercials on television. For example... And this is kind of an extreme example, but it's absolutely what Jesus said. He said, if anyone would offend one of these little ones of mine, 
it would be better that you tied a giant millstone around his neck, chained it around his neck, and threw him into the deepest ocean. Now, you're not going to see that on TV. Jesus gets us. He's going to chain a giant rock to somebody's neck and throw him into the deepest ocean. But that's what Jesus said. So that's an example of taking the things that we accept about Christianity and rejecting the things that we don't. And, and I think to the detriment of the true church, that's where a lot of people live today. Because you are a Nazarene minister, so that's, as you've mentioned, it's from the Wesleyan tradition. And if you don't mind talking about this, like, historically, I would say up until Martin Luther and the Reformation, that basically whatever the church or the Vatican taught, that was authoritative. And Luther makes a break and says, no, Scripture only is authoritative, not the church, not people. But John Wesley came behind him and said something even a little more different. Uh, so explain what you know of, of why he said what he said and what it actually was that he said. Well, first of all, we'll say that the primary difference right now, you know, we, we all talk about the things that how uh, Catholics and Protestants differ. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, a, a, a decent discussion. But the primary difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism has always been over the authority of Scripture. For the Catholic Church to this day, the word of the Holy Church or the Pope or the tradition of the Church is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. In the Protestant Church, there's four pillars of Protestantism, but I would think the first one is solo scriptura, or by Scripture alone. Mm -hmm. So so for we Protestants... um, Holy Scripture is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Right. That's why if you're a Protestant, and it's in an, listen, I don't want to degrade the Catholics, but, but I'm just saying that's the primary difference. No, I, but, but the word of the Pope might even supersede Scripture. Now, we hope that most of the time they're in agreement, and right. I think most of the time they are. But in Martin Luther's day, yeah. that wasn't necessarily true. Well, I can tell you, having a lot of friends that are Catholics, they're quite troubled with the current Pope, Pope Francis, because he uh, seems to be making uh, statements that are contrary to Scripture. Of course, they're having a bit of a crisis because of of their belief that he is like the the direct descendant of uh, St. Peter. I think the situation is a little different than it was during uh, Martin Luther. Absolutely. If we can talk about Martin Luther for a moment, he, of course, was an Augustinian monk. His job was... there's a great book, um, and the title of it is Here I Stand. It's a biography. Um, I think the writer is Bangs, maybe B-A-N-G-S. But anyway, excellent book, Here I Stand. And it's a biography of Martin Luther. But the story of how he ended up becoming a monk is, is just very interesting. But uh, anyway, he's copying scripture, and of course, I think this is a pretty well-known, pretty famous story. He's copying scripture, and he's, you know, we, we have this quote for, that we th- always attribute to Paul, the just shall live by faith. But he was actually, that's actually first written in the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. And so he, th- that was what Martin Luther was copying, and he re- read those words, the just shall live by faith. And it was just an eye-opening moment for him. And he... he instead of trying to just be perfect and be the perfect Catholic, and he had done everything in his life trying to be um, good and right before God and, and everything, 
and, and everything he felt like he kind of failed, you know, uh, as most of us would if we tried to do be godlike or Christ-like in our own strength, where you are going to fail. But he finally recognized that we live by faith in for us in our Lord Jesus Christ, right? And so that was earth-shattering. And then he had already, you know, we know about the 95 thesis that he nailed to the church door where many times he preached. Um, but it was just his uh, protest against all of the things. And listen, he wasn't trying to start the Protestant church. He was a reformer. He wanted to reform the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church was so corrupt at the time, uh, even the Catholics acknowledged it, yeah. it needed reform. In fact, there was a reform even after Martin Luther split off in the, really the beginning of the Protestant Church yeah. with uh, Zwingli as well and later on Calvin. And I can't remember, you know, in, in England it was really started by Henry VIII, right. but, but there, was a, there was other reasons beside that. But anyway, the beginning of Protestantism. But Martin Luther just said, look, you're doing things. The church is doing things that are just absolutely opposed to the clear teaching of Scripture, and they were, mm -hmm. many things. And so he couldn't, as a, in a as really a God-fearing uh, Christian, he, he just said, I can't, I can't go along with that. One thing that I've noticed that there's always been this uh, criticism or this uh, demarcation line of where things went wrong in Christianity, and a lot of people say it was with Constantine when mm -hmm. the church became legal and also became a, an Official, I don't know. I don't know if it was Constantine, but it was the guy after him that made Christianity official religion of the Roman mm -hmm. Empire, and so Christianity, or at least the Church, seemed to absorb that. Now it was a, a power structure, mm -hmm. uh, and you know it, it was to your benefit to become a Christian, yes. as opposed to before, where you know you, it wasn't a benefit, and when you, you kind of weeded out the men from the boys, so to speak. Yeah. What do you say to that? Is that a is that a um, accurate narrative, or is that an exaggeration? Well, first of all, I would say about Constantine, and I think it's about 325, 80, but uh, most people now say that, that he made Christianity the one religion of the Roman Empire, which is not exactly accurate. He made it illegal to persecute Christians. You know, up until his time, uh, there had been persecution on and off for 250 years of Christians. And, and I think most people know a little bit about the story of Nero and then uh, a couple other emperors after him that were, uh, one of them probably even worse than Nero. But anyway, um, what Constantine did was he normalized Christianity. But I think it was maybe the next, um, the next leader of the Roman Empire yeah, that made it the official um, religion of, of the empire. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it became, in, in Europe, it you know, by the really, as the Roman Empire was losing power, and in some cases crumbling, mm -hmm. um, Christianity was was growing in power. And so, one of the things that wasn't good and wasn't right was um, the Pope really became even more powerful in Europe than the Roman Emperor, mm -hmm. because Roman power was fading while. Christian power was was rising and quickly. So there was some discussion between who's really in charge, uh, the Pope or the Roman Emperor. 
Um, so that's why I kind of confused those because they did kind of run together. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you're right to say that wasn't a good thing for the church. Now, it was good that the church was allowed to flourish and people were allowed to be Christians and people weren't persecuted for Christianity. Um, but when, when the structure of the church, the hierarchy of the church, became a political power structure, I, I, I think any reasonable person would say that's not really consistent with true Christianity. Right. right? Yeah, I've heard, again, people argue about this, where they, some people will say that um, when the Roman Empire adapted Christianity, that Christianity did transform the Roman Empire somewhat. Like it made it a little bit more human, and or I shouldn't say human, oh, it's the word, uh, more humane. Yes. Uh, and softened it a bit. But there's also the ones who point out, well, Christianity was affected by the Roman Empire, where it, it seemed to either adapt some of the their practices or just basically people who are under the Roman Empire uh, never fully left their pagan ways. They just kind of added Christianity to the mix. What do you think? I, I think that's absolutely true. I think it was true then, and I think it's still true to, of the church today. I mean, one of the, one of the questions I, I ask our congregation on a pretty regular basis, and it's, I think, the right question, is the church influencing the culture, or is the culture influencing the church? Mm-hmm. And sadly, in our culture right now, it would be the latter, right? right? The church is being influenced by the culture more than the other way around. So back to John Wesley. How is his approach to Scripture different than Martin Luther's and than the Catholic Church before him? Yeah, Wesley certainly was Protestant. You know, he was he was a part of uh, the Anglican Church, the Church of England. He was he was born into the Church of England. He died an Anglican priest, um, and he, like Martin Luther, as a reformer, he wasn't trying to start the Methodist Church. He wasn't really trying to start a new church. He just wanted to reform the Church of England. But what we call, he approached Scripture probably a little bit differently than than Martin Luther had in that what's sometimes called the Wesleyan quadrilateral, even though it's not necessarily dependent on John Wesley. But he said that you have Scripture as the, the first and, and final authority. But, but Scripture can be supported by tradition, meaning the traditions of the church, uh, human experience, and reason. Reason, experience, and tradition. Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. It usually kind of goes in that order. So one of the things that Wesley did, um, when his, I guess, really new idea was what we call the doctrine of entire sanctification. And he said it was would be um, subsequent to justification and regeneration. Uh, and, and he said that, you know, people would receive the fullness of the Spirit as a second work of grace. Now, to this day, many people disagreed with him. Many people in his day disagreed with him. So he didn't say Scripture only necessarily, but he did put it above the, the other three. Absolutely. Okay. It's elevated above the other three. And yeah, that's, that's where I was going to with that, with that one example. So 
you can't read what Wesley said verbatim in the New Testament. You, you won't believe you, you're going to receive the Spirit in its fullness as a second definite work of grace. You're not going to read that. But he took what the Bible does say about being sanctified through and through, Paul says in, in Thessalonians and uh, other places. And then he used, he, he, Wesley was really good at detailing um, and really keeping record of what happened to Christian people. Mm-hmm. And so he just saw what happened to thousands of people uh, to whom he ministered and other preachers ministered. And so he used the experience that people have to come up with the doctrine. So it wasn't beyond Scripture. It wasn't against anything in Scripture. He would say it's quite scriptural. But he added the nuance by considering... Uh, it's kind of like pragmatism, you know. Um, this is the way it happens to... Uh-huh. What, did, what did he say? This is the way it happens to uh, Wesleyans. <laughs> and then the, the use of reason, that was argued about for years, you know. With all all the discussion of science and religion, um, some people thought it was improper to try to use reason to to come up with our doctrinal beliefs, right? But listen, we're reasonable people. God has given us the ability to reason, and certainly we use reason and experience. And and to talk about the tradition of the church, what most Protestants believe, what I certainly believe, is that. Um, Tradition in the church always has a has a vote. Mm-hmm. We can never just throw uh, away all the traditions of the church and say now we're going to be the new church of today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's never never appropriate for the church. We have traditions that have, are two thousand years old, and we're not bound by tradition. We're not necessarily stuck in one spot by tradition, but we have to honor tradition, and tradition always has a vote. Right, if that makes sense. Yeah, sometimes when I argue with, with uh, I guess they'd be more of the either charismatic or fundamentalist uh, type of thinking, where they they argue against that whole thing about being reasonable. Sure, they say yeah. that you know scripture. They don't come out and say scripture is not reasonable, but they will say like you can rationalize away anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that maybe you're confusing the two. But I always give the example of like Jesus said that you know if you lust, you know you you pluck your eyes out. And, you know, that, that takes care of it. Well, reasonable people will know, like, well, just don't lust, you know, right? But I've yet to see any fundamentalist or charismatic preachers with their eyes plucked out. And I know they've lusted. We all have, you yes. know, so come on. <laughs> so, you know, they, they don't see that distinction. That's why I wouldn't say I'm a fundamentalist, because obviously Jesus is using an extreme example. Mm-hmm. He's making a point. It's an illustration. Right. It's not, and I think we had this discussion before, but not everything in the Bible is literal, mm-hmm. right? And, and fundamentalists too much want to make every word of scripture um, very literal mm-hmm. when much of it is figurative, right? right? It's funny you should bring this up because I, I think we've had this discussion in the parking lot with, where we work <laughs> a couple of times, but... Yeah. Of course, I teach American history, and I have to cover the the Scopes Monkey Trial. Mm-hmm. And you know, fundamentalism proper came about a little bit before that, where you know there was uh, modernists, as they were called then, or, or basically progressive Christians then, that yes. they were um, they were tossing out parts of the Bible like miracles, liberal or, Christianity, yeah, liberal yeah. Christianity, yeah. yeah. 
And so you had this reaction, probably in a, in a more too extreme way, where mm-hmm. uh, people were saying, "Well, you had to believe in these fundamentals, yes. or else, or you know, else you weren't really a Christian." And so you had a lot of kind of ignorance that got woven into all that. To me, it's just understanding the scripture, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I make this distinction in my own mind. It's one thing to know what the Bible says; it's another thing to know what the Bible means. And that's what we call, it's the discipline of hermeneutics, right? Biblical interpretation. And there's a lot of different things that, um, principles that, hermeneutical principles that we use to correctly interpret Scripture. And that's what we want to do. Right. We want to interpret it as, but going back to liberal Christianity of, of <laughs> the late 19th, early 20th century, um, there were you know, several Germans and, uh, uh, David Strauss, Strauss, I think it was, kind of led a movement against anything that was supernatural or anything that uh, was miraculous in Scripture. He said we got to do away with that and just ignore because that those things aren't real or true. And so the people didn't understand what they were seeing, is what they would say. They they weren't really miracles. They, maybe right. maybe something happened, but it was we could explain it scientifically yeah. if we had scientists back then. Sure, yeah. and I'll, I can give you some examples of that. Yeah. But that's the fundamentalist movement. Very much was born out of that a reaction against even um, the great Swiss um, theologian Karl Barth. You know he he was a neo orthodox. Christian and what he did and and his was his theology was a reaction against um, liberal theology as well and what he did is just um, and you know church dogmatics looks like instead of encyclopedias just an enormous work but he went back through the traditional doctrines of the church and uh, reiterated them restated them and defended them mm-hmm. against a lot of liberalism within the church but anyway J I Packer was the guy who really kind of is known as kind of the father or founder of fundamentalism. But he, he and others just formed a group and said, these are the fundamentals of the faith. If you don't believe these things, you can't be a Christian. And of course, well, on the top of the list is the bodily resurrection of Jesus, right? Did Jesus really raise from the dead? Which is still debated in liberal Christianity to this day. But what J.I. Packer and a whole lot of other people at the time said, it, so they literally wrote down the fundamentals. This is what you have to believe. If you don't believe these things, you can't be a Christian. And when I go through that list and read that list, there's nothing on that list I can disagree with. Mm-hmm. So I guess that makes me a fundamentalist. Sure. But I'm not a fundamentalist in the way that well, it's perceived today. Yeah, right. I would think, because again, there was I've seen several of those lists. I know there was an actual... Journal called the the fundamentals yes. is where all this came from. But yes. like I remember, and sometimes you see like political cartoons, like the steps that were like good, that lead towards hell. Like the like if you abandon uh, these certain tenets of Christianity, it leads you to hell. I do remember at least one uh, list that had the, the inerrancy of Scripture mm-hmm. that did make it on the list yes. with some people's lists. Yes, uh, there was another one about uh, about of course science uh, over. Uh, scripture or, or something like that, like yeah, yeah a subject, subjecting scripture to science. But yeah. of course, that's one of your fortes, and I think we should do a whole episode about that as a separate thing. But yeah. interface uh, of science and religion. Yes, yeah. yeah. I'm a big fan of something that came out of that same time period, what biblical criticism we call it now, mm-hmm. where you know the 
you had these scholars that were trying to figure out like, hey, wait a minute, this is an addition because look at the Hebrews different. You know, mm-hmm. they would really study different parts of the Bible and try to figure out when it was written to the best of their knowledge. Uh, you know, point out like, hey, this is an editor. Something's been edited here. Uh, oh, look, there's two different creation stories. Why is that? And try to figure out why is there uh, two different stories? Where I mean, they're they're fairly close. It's called redaction. Yeah, right. redaction. Uh, yeah. You have four different gospels, and they mm-hmm. they all end differently. You know, it's just slightly. I mean, there's no denying that they all witness mm-hmm. the existence and ministry of Christ, but they you know have different uh, takes on, uh, on on a few things. But sometimes uh, when I hear the debate, again, I guess you would call them either traditional or, or fundamentalist Christians, they want to throw out the biblical criticism as mm. well as you know the progressivism that they mm. think have come out of that. Uh, what do you say to that? Well, you know, we have source criticism, form criticism, re- biblical redaction, and... Um, some of the things that they say, I think, are good and right. Some of the things that, from the very uh, outset of that, of biblical criticism in general, some of the things that were hypothesized initially have been shown to be just completely wrong. And uh, uh, Wellhausen, a German who came up with this idea that the Pentateuch was written by four different groups of people post-exile, you know, after the exile. And um, the Yahwehist, the Eloist, and um, Priestly, and I can't remember what the other one was. Right, right. And and people just (coughs) embrace that as part of uh, redaction or form criticism, source criticism. So for people listening, these guys look back at the Old Testament and they seem to uh, find like four strands of thought. Yes. And... That, that seem to be distinct. Yeah, and, yes. and they didn't necessarily agree with each other on every little point, you know. But they, they, and again, a lot of it has to do with the time period that they think these people existed. So, if you want to expound on that more, because I think a lot of people have never heard that. Yeah, well, Dr. Wellhausen, and it, it just grew out of the beginning of biblical criticism. But like you said, when when you really study the text in depth, and you mentioned Genesis. And you could go to throughout the Pentateuch, and you would see similar things. But you you have one story, and then kind of another story that aren't aren't contradictory. They just tell something a little bit different. And so the idea was these are um, two different writers, and at some point, and it always goes back to after the exile or during the exile, mm-hmm. um, these Jewish, um, for lack of a better word, scholars you know, combine these and put them in the final form that we read today. Yeah, they didn't choose one one over the other. I know some people say, like, well, one's from the, the tradition of Israel and one's from the tradition of Judea. There's different explanations for why. Yeah, there's a lot of explanations, and it's all subjective, and it's all hypothetical, really. But I, I don't have any problem with it, um, with source criticism, as long... The only thing that bothers me about it, you very quickly go into the realm of speculation. Yeah, and so you, you know, if it, without <laughs> it's kind of a contradiction because yeah. they're looking for a certain science, certain things that they, they can empirically say this happened, yeah. and they do a whole lot of speculation that they can't empirically say it really happened. That that's right. Yeah, and so you very quickly come into the realm of speculation. And the, here's the only thing that bothers me: if you read um, 
the journals of scholarship. You'll have these, and you know, a lot of it's writing your dissertation, right? Everybody's got to write a dissertation, so they have to come up with some idea. And so they'll write, you know, a book basically on this one one idea about some form or source criticism. And then the, the thing that bothers me is it's just an idea uh-huh. that they're just going with. They, they'll have, obviously have some supporting evidence, but people just believe it as if that's an absolute fact. And just because you you know this as well as I do as a historian, just because you read it in somebody's dissertation doesn't mean it's true, right? Mm-hmm. So you got to take all those things with a grain of salt. I'm not opposed to source criticism. <laughs> I think it's a good tool when used in the right way, but I think some people take it too far. And there are those Bible scholars, and you have to understand this. Just because you're a Bible scholar doesn't mean you're a believer, right? right? You can you can be absolutely atheistic and be a, and sadly some of them are. Well, yeah, well, the, so they, the most famous one, Bart Ehrlman, a brilliant guy, but he's very hostile to the subject that he teaches about. Well, one of the things that that's really interesting that I saw not too long ago, and it's been an ongoing debate about the uh, book of Isaiah. I don't know if you know much about that. but I, I know that the, the argument, is there was probably three different yes. Isaiahs, I think. At least uh, at least two. You have yes. Isaiah that was written by the actual prophet Isaiah mm-hmm. in uh, 740 B.C. Mm-hmm. And then you would have Deutero-Isaiah that was written post-exilic again in right. the exile or after the exile. Because, uh, to explain to folks, I think in Isaiah he... He references uh, historical events that no one guy could have known unless he lived like you know, hundreds of years yes. or stuff like that. <laughs> yes, and and one of the real turning points in that discussion was mentioning Cyrus the Great by name uh-huh. later on in Isaiah. I can't remember what chapter it is. Uh-huh. So they just said, "Well, there's no way the Isaiah, if he lived in the eighth century BC, could have possibly known the name of this Persian." or Medo-Persian leader, Cyrus the Great, who came centuries later. Uh, And and yeah, it has been hypothesized that Isaiah has three, first, second, and third Isaiah. And, you know, and I heard this great discussion between a Jewish scholar and a Christian scholar, uh, and they were just arguing over that. And and it was just very, very interesting. And... um, and I, I can't say who's right on some of those things. I, I have an idea, but I like to hear the discussion sure. of it. But uh, whenever you, and it's not just the Bible, if you're dealing with any ancient text, right? Even Homer's Odyssey and the, the Iliad, you know, uh, even the Shakespeare's writings. There, there are people now that say there was no such man as, as Shakespeare. And, and yeah. they said it was just a group of writers and they just all used the same. So, I mean... And you go far back in history, like the Old Testament, you know, the Book of Job and the Pentateuch, very, very old documents. Um, we don't know for sure. We don't have the definitive answers. Right. Like I said, we, we have no autographs. We don't know. Um, True, but I will say that it is fascinating because uh, I don't know if you ever pay attention to the archaeological world, mm-hmm. uh, that they every once in a while they dig up something and they'll find like, something that corresponds with exactly what the Bible has said. Yeah. Like, I think the most recent thing was they finally found something that attested witness to the existence of David, King David. Yes. For a while, David. they thought he was a, uh, yeah. a mythical character. Yes. 
And, and that's, that's kind of what I'm saying, Tim. The, you, people now, looking back, hundreds of centuries past, you can say anything, right? You, and it, and people will believe it. If, if you have a PhD behind your name, sure. you can say anything, people yeah. are going to believe it, right? Yeah. They're going to jump on the bandwagon. There was no real Shakespeare. Well, that's, I think that's ridiculous, but, <laughs> but some people, do some people believe it? Yeah. yeah. Because some people, they saw it on the internet, so it has to be yeah, true. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a lot of sincere people in what we call now progressive Christianity. Mm-hmm. Their buzzword is they want to be relevant. They want to be all things to all people, I guess you might say. Uh, and they're trying to be relevant to the modern culture. Mm-hmm. And so that looks in different ways. So it's probably true that uh, some traditional Christians have been stuck in their ways. Like they're, they feel like you have to sing uh, certain kinds of hymns uh, mm-hmm. or you have to do church in a certain way. And then there are those, like, they, they adapt reasonably, I would say. And then you have, of course, the more extreme where, as I was saying earlier about the people that were just, like, cutting parts of the Bible out because it's offensive right. uh, to people and people won't want to come to church if they're going to be judged or if they have to change uh, their lifestyle or whatever. What do you say to the people that are sincere? They're trying to make Christianity or Jesus relevant, mm-hmm. but... Kind of like your illustration before, they only present a kind of cartoonish Jesus, like the hippie yeah, Jesus. Caricature. Yeah, and not the full Jesus. And then uh, explain why you're a hateful bigot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For saying such. Yeah. No. First of all, I would say, and th- this has been a question, you know, and even back when I was in seminary, we, we would, every now and then the question would come up, how do we make the Bible relevant? And if you're going to be a pastor, you know, you're you're kind of thinking about, um, having a church and having a church that grows and, you know, not running people off or offending people, right? Uh-huh. And so the question always came up, how do you make the Bible relevant? Well, when I preach, I pretty much, this is just the pattern of preaching. We read the text. I go through the text and make comments on the text. And then the second half almost always asks this question, how now, how does the ancient text come to bear on our lives as Christian people in the 21st century America, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we would call being irrelevant. But I answered that question years ago when I was in seminary in this way. I said, if the Bible were not relevant, there was nothing I could do. There is nothing I could do to make it relevant. The Bible is only relevant because it is relevant, right? <laughs> and people that don't think it's relevant, they haven't read the Bible. They don't understand the Bible. They might have a different viewpoint if they read the Bible and tried to understand the Bible. It might become much more relevant. Mm-hmm. But the Bible is relevant. And, and I've already mentioned this philosophy that we call pragmatism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, philosophy for the, through the centuries has always kind of just asked the question, how do we know what's true and right? Right? How do we know what's valid? How do we, what is the nature of reality? How do we know what we know? How do we arrive at knowledge? You know, epistemology and um, metaphysics, you know, the primary branches of philosophy. But pragmatism came along and it was just the idea that something is proved valid, true, or we might say relevant if it really works in actual practice, mm-hmm. right? And I would say the words of Jesus are relevant because they actually work pragmatically, mm-hmm. right? In other words, 
you know, and a lot of times in Christianity, we we kind of hang our hats on these ideas of heaven and hell, right? We want to be a Christian because we want to avoid hell and we want to, you know, achieve heaven. But my argument has always been, even from the time I was very young, I'm a Christian because I believe that Christian living, the principles of true Christianity, they will lead us to a better life, a better way of living, a better way of being, right? Um, And I think pragmatically that's proven true. That's what makes the Bible relevant is Christian principles really work. And I can give you an awful lot of examples that nobody probably wants to hear on this podcast. But if you live a a Christ-like life and you treat people the way they want to be treated and, and if you... You, you brought up the idea of lust, and we've all lusted, and there, I, I wouldn't argue with that. But Christianity and even Judaism says that we should marry, and we should uh, have a family, and we, the two, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. And we know that the, the Decalogue has, you know, don't commit adultery. Now, Listen, if we live in that kind of way, if we live by those principles, our life will be better than if we ignore those and just live in any way we want and and uh, reproduce like, <laughs> like rabbits, rabbits or dogs yeah. or anything right. else. And listen, you and I are around children, mm-hmm. school-age kids. And can we see the difference between the oh, kids yeah. that grow up in a, in a stable environment of yeah. father, mother, and children? Mm-hmm. Not to mention raised in the admonition of the Lord, right. and those who have no stability or no direction in their life—it's yeah. it's daylight and dark. Yeah. So that's why I say the principles of Christianity are not only relevant; they're pragmatically valid. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, there's like a mathematical equation. I can't remember if it's uh, it's one of those conservative guys like uh, either Ben Shapiro, a Jewish guy, mm-hmm. uh, or Charlie Kirk. Maybe they both say this, but they they always argue that. Uh, if you graduate high school, uh, wait till you get married to have children, mm-hmm. and I can't remember what the third thing is, you are more than likely to be to live above poverty the That's rest right. of your life. It's yeah. just like a mathematical equation. It's, it it's almost you cannot go wrong if you do those things. It doesn't matter if you uh, are a Christian or a Jew or, or nothing. You know, the, just that right there is mathematical. But I think it's it's similar to what you're saying that mm-hmm. being humble, knowing that you're not God of your life, uh, being kind to others. Yeah, you're inevitably gonna have a better time of it, you know. Better quality of life. Yeah. yeah. People will treat you differently. And the uh, the statistics on on that, the st- statistics are overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not... It, anybody that doesn't believe that, just do the research for yourself on mm-hmm. it. The single most um, definitive um, indicator of poverty is a single mom having multiple kids in her home. Mm-hmm. That's, that, that's an indicator... Uh, of poverty, you're almost guaranteed to live in poverty. Right, um, and you can, man, I tell you, you can go and do the do the work and find statistics on that, and it's unbelievable. I think a lot, a lot of modern folks want to reject that because there is this rejection of the traditional nuclear family. But yeah. I, all I can say is, I wish they would ride with either me or you on our school buses yeah. and yeah. see. Because I think for a minute there, I, I, I 
you know, believe the secular lie or the, the modernist lie, like, you know, just do what you want to do, you know, be, right. be, make yourself happy. Yeah. It doesn't seem like a bad thing on the surface, but man, it does not make you happy. And, yep. and at the very least, it leaves this wake of, of misery behind you, not only people you've affected because you put your happiness above others, yeah. including other adults, other children, your, your own children. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it's a mess. It really is. And and to live, you know, hedonism in general, and we've, we've tended to be a very hedonistic culture, at least in the last 50 years yeah. or so. And it, it and listen, we, we celebrate our rights and our freedoms. And listen, I'm going to define, I'm going to defend individual rights as much as anybody because I consider the alternative. Yeah. But because you have rights and freedom doesn't mean that we shouldn't follow um, the principles of Christianity. And I hate to say it, but it, we'll just put it in this word deception mm-hmm. is that I can just live for myself and do what I want to do for mm-hmm. whatever's best for me and whatever feels the best for me, mm-hmm. whatever in any day I want to do. And we think that's going to make us happy. And you've already said it just doesn't. Right. It just, that goes back to the pragmatic reality, right? It just doesn't. Listen, I have to be honest with you. I wish it was true. I wish I could, we could live and and have as much pleasure and fun as we wanted mm-hmm. and there not be consequences, but just the, the, the data, my uh, few years of misery says otherwise. Some people have the idea, well, I just want to have fun. I don't really want to be responsible. I don't want to work. You know, I, I don't want to spend my time working uh-huh. um, because, man, that's hard. We don't want to do that. Um, but... But you know that you you can take that position. You can say, I never want to be productive. I never want to be responsible. But that's going to lead you somewhere necessarily, mm-hmm. right? Necessarily. Yeah. I don't know anybody that can just be irresponsible and lazy and slothful. And and that means that somebody has to work so you don't yes. work. Somebody's making up the difference. Right. right? Yeah. Um, and then people that are self-disciplined and do the right things and get a good education like and, and your life's going to be better right yeah. i do want to speak to the sincerity of people that even though we may totally disagree with them that mm-hmm. we do have to recognize that some people come from a sincere place that they they want to um uh, reach people or they want to help people uh so, so what do you say to that about the sincerity or maybe the validity of some of the criticisms that progressive christianity has against traditional cr- christianity you know that's a very general question to start with, so I can't I can't give a real specific answer answer to a general question, but I think probably there is some validity, and and listen, Christianity in the church is never above criticism, right? I, I I'm pretty um, necessarily critique myself, and I should I have to ask ask myself, you know, should you have said this? Should have done this this way? Were, were you accurate? So yeah. Nothing's above criticism. You know, it's just like we're talking about biblical criticism. The Bible has held up to, it's been more scrutinized than any document ever written by a lot. Nothing else is even close. But the Bible, if it's true and right, it can hold up to all that scrutiny. But back to your question, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure that there are um, sincere minded people that think this is good and right. But sincerity, even though it's good and right, is not necessarily true either. I can be sincerely wrong, mm-hmm. and I and a lot of people say, "Well, this guy's been doing this forever, so it must be right." But I always think uh, Fidel Castro was the <laughs> communist dictator of Cuba my entire life. He, he came to power the year I was born. Oh wow! But so that doesn't 
that doesn't make him good or right because he's been the communist dictator for right. 100 years. So people can be very sincere and still inaccurate. Um, but I'm I, point by point, I would be glad if you say this is a, pro, a criticism of the church or this is a progressive view that doesn't fit with traditional Christianity. I would almost have to respond to that on a point by point right. basis, right? Because you can't really do that generally. Yeah. Because I'm sure there's some things that sincere Christians think are good and right that may very well be. But I think the tendency has been in the United States for the church really to dumb down true Christianity. I think we really do live in a culture that, and me and you being an educator, I think you would see there's a lot of tendency where we just um, accept the bare minimum of everything, lower the bar. I think the tendency has been to, like we talked earlier, to just rewrite the New Testament and make it whatever I want it to be. And there's always a danger in that. I want to say one other thing. This is kind of unrelated, but we were talking about the relevancy of Scripture. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a big fan of Aristotle. I think maybe, and he he predates Christianity by, I think, three centuries. I think he was around 300 B.C. But one of the, I I don't think anybody could argue, one of the best and the brightest human beings to to ever live and breathe. And Mm -hmm. the more I read and study Aristotle, the more I'm just blown away by the intellect of a man that lived in the the day he did. But he talked about a a principle called the common good. And this does kind of fit into the overarching discussion. Because he said, and this is his book on ethics, right? Nicomedian Ethics, named after one of his sons. But he said, "What to be ethical as a society and as a people, we want the greatest amount of good for the greatest amount of people. Um, the common good, we generally refer, refer to it as the common good. Well, that's very consistent. And Aristotle, in many things, very consistent with the New Testament mm-hmm. and Christian principles. Paul argues for the same thing, the common good. And in the church, it, it always makes sense. The church is never about the greatest amount of good for one person. Mm -hmm. The good of any one person never supersedes the good of the whole body, right? And so so that principle is really a Christian principle, even though I quote Aristotle in Uh it, but it makes sense in real life applications. So it's pragmatically valid, I might say. still in a historical theological mood there's in the corner back by the woodpile episode 270 with reformation scholar dr carlos air talking about when the devil gets the credit for miracles and the film the blues brothers then there's episode 270 where we talk with christian singers seth and nerva Reddy about the current state of the christian music industry finally there's another that to which we are tethered episode back on 241 which is basically more of the same of what you heard today in the corner back by the woodpile is produced by a closet a pocket and a suitcase you can listen to this podcast on itunes stitcher or podbean.com if you'd like to send us some hate mail you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com see ya and i wouldn't want to be ya (laughs) 